If you haven't noticed yet, we live in a fallen world. Hopefully that's not news to you. We look around and we see many pieces of evidence of brokenness of our human nature, brokenness of our culture. And it's often easy to look outside and say, broken, 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 and diagnose from the outside. Or sometimes it's all too easy to look within ourselves, our own spiritual life, our own life of holiness, and to see the results of the fall and brokenness. But I think one of the ways we experience this most profoundly and most intimately, the brokenness of our fallen nature, is within our own families. Raise your hand if you have a perfect family. (laughs) Three boys in the front row. (laughs) All right. Besides them, we normally don't experience having a perfect family. I was talking to one of my seminarian friends the other day, and I was processing with him. I said, I'm struggling with this, this, with my parents, with my family. It's a tough situation. And he looked over at me and he said, what? You? Your family? I thought you guys were perfect. I was like, no. All of us carry within us, whether it's with our own children, whether it's we as children to our parents, our siblings, maybe people who have left the church, or through situations of pride or brokenness or tragedy, the family experiences the results of the fall. And one of the basic words that we usually use today in the world, in a dysfunctional world, is that most of us experience, especially in the family, dysfunction. One of my favorite movies, I'm hesitant to share this because I don't recommend it as a family uh, movie night, The Royal Tenenbaums, if you've seen it before. Um, It's an edgy movie, the the director is very artistic, it's very beautifully done, but it's very raw, and it centers in on a dysfunctional family. So maybe once your kids grow up and they come home from college, dads can sit down with their sons in their perfect family, (laughs) and they can watch it together and say, what is good about this? What is bad about this? But I wouldn't go home and watch it on your Sunday, necessarily. But it focuses in on this dysfunctional family, the Tenenbaums. The children are all prodigies. They're all brilliant, and they're all successful. The daughter adopted into the family, she produces to national acclaim her first play. One of the sons is a great mathematician and becomes a great businessman, making millions by the age of like 15. And the other one, as a child, becomes a pro tennis player. The epitome of success. And eventually the dad starts to glorify himself and the family because of these great children. And in the eyes of the world, they're very successful, but eventually dysfunction starts to swirl and churn as the success plummets. As they become adults and they no longer can flourish from this external success. Their next door neighbor and one of the friends of the family who I want to center on today, his name is Eli Cash. He's played by Owen Wilson, so you can imagine it in your mind. Eli Cash is so jealous of this family and he doesn't have it for himself. He so wants to be part of this family and to receive love for his own successes that as a child in school, he sends his own report cards to Mrs. Tenenbaum so that she might say, good job. As he becomes a novelist of great acclaim, he sends reviews of his books to Mrs. Tenenbaum so that she might say, good job. 
And through the whole movie, he's trying to crash into this family to find this identity because he so longs to be a child of the Tenenbaums. One of the last scenes of the movie, as he's trying to get to the wedding he wasn't invited to in the family, he's driving like a maniac down the street, crashes straight into the house, this is a symbol, flies out of his convertible and through the front window of the house. His approach is, through violence, through success, to try to crash through into the very life of the family. Today we celebrate the solemnity of all saints. The image does make sense eventually, don't worry. Today we celebrate all saints. Again, not just the saints we know, the big ones, but even the small ones we don't know. The moms and dads that lived lives of heroic holiness and were never noticed. Maybe the quiet hermit or monk, never seen by anyone, but heroically holy. And the, the great thing is, frankly, in their first reading from Revelation, when we look at the reality of heaven, there's great hope. Because John, as he's writing this, he says, I saw 144,000 people from every tribe of the people of Israel. And he said next to them, he didn't say, and then there were only like four other people in heaven. No, he says, there was a great multitude of saints that could not be counted. There were so many saints in heaven. And this is great hope. Because that means, oh, if there's so many, that means it is possible. Oftentimes when we look at the Gospels, it says, the way to heaven is narrow and perilous. But the road to perdition is wide and easy. It's harder to push a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. If you do not take care of the poor and the needy, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And all of a sudden we're like, okay, <laughs> little help please. Can we really do this? Can we really amount to this? And praise God, the book of Revelation says, yes. There are many saints in heaven. But oftentimes as Catholics, especially when you've got things like Etsy and Instagram and all of these things, there's a lot of really awesome ways to portray the saints. I don't know how many of you have children or grandchildren or whatever, and they all dressed up as saints last night for All Hallows' Eve. It's fantastic. And when we ask, why is a saint a saint, oftentimes we go straight to their superpowers. Why did you pick this one? Oh, because of this and that. For example, St. Catherine of Siena began having visions of Jesus Christ when she was six years old. Let's, let's, let's play a game. Keep your hands, no, just don't actually do this, but imagine keeping your hands up, and then as soon as something doesn't describe you, you have to put your hand down. <laughs> Did you start having visions at six years old? No? Okay. She mystically married Jesus. She lived on the Eucharist alone for years, eating nothing else. She received the stigmata. Single-handedly, she restored the papacy from Avignon, France, to Rome. Does anyone still have their hand up? No? Okay. Saint Bernadette from Lourdes. Simple girl. Yeah, there's hope, right? 
She suddenly starts having visions of Mary, the Immaculate Conception. She enters religious life, and when she dies, and she's canonized, they exhume her body and find what? She's completely incorrupt. She died nearly 150 years ago, and if you go to her tomb today, she looked like she just lay down to sleep. Her skin, her body, preserved by a miracle of God. My favorite, and the reason I chose him as my patron saint at confirmation, is Saint Padre Pio. If you want a saint with all of the superpowers, go to Padre Pio. He can cure people. He reads souls. He received the stigmata. He could bilocate. He could levitate. He could fly. There's a story of jets about to bomb his town. And the official Air Force report says, could not bomb the town because of flying monk. He appeared before the jets, and they had to swerve off away from the town to intercede and save the town. Or we might compare ourselves then to the great mystics, St. Faustina, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross. And on one side, yes, the saints are so encouraging, offering us the example and strength to persevere in this life. But when we're trained by the world to say, no, as a child, I'm measured by the things outside of myself. As a human person in the world today, I'm measured by, if you're a child, pleasing my parents. Can I do everything right? Or as you grow up in school, my teachers, can I get the good grades and not be a disappointment? Or as you begin work, are my employers pleased with me? Or my spouse, do I have what it takes to really love, to really be a saint? And then we look at the saints and we say, oh, maybe, maybe I can sneak in by martyrdom, right? To the glory of God, three days ago in Nice, France, three people wake up, they go to the Basilica for Mass, the sacristan opens the door and begins to prepare for Mass, and a 21-year-old man comes in and takes their lives because they're Catholics. Simple people, sacristan for 10 years, 60-year-old woman, 44-year-old mother from Brazil with three children, and they're martyrs. And a part of us is, what tragedy? Of course. How terrible to experience a tragic death like that. But the other side of me is like, they got it. They're martyrs for the faith. They're saints in heaven today because of the blood that was shed. The last words of the mother as she ran out of the church with mortal wounds, she entered into a cafe and she said to the people around her as she took her last breath, tell my children I love them. Tell my children I love them. She's a mom. She's not levitating. She's not superpowers. She's a mom who loved Jesus. The reality of sainthood is not to have the golden ticket, 
the awesome superpowers that we see in the saints. Oftentimes in our own spiritual life or in our life of holiness, we compare ourselves to such great examples. Maybe even the neighbor sitting next to in the pew. Wow, they pray so well. And we compare ourselves to those around us instead of comparing ourselves to the mercy of God. If you've ever thought these words, this might be familiar. Yes, the saints are holy, but not even one of those things has happened to me. I don't even know how to pray sometimes. I don't know how to hear God's word in my life. So I read the scriptures. I pray Lexio Divina. I try to listen, but I just can't hear sometimes. Sometimes I don't want to go to Mass because my life hurts. It's hard, and God feels far away. Sometimes I can't pray because of the darkness. And then we skip to the conclusions. Therefore, I am not holy. Therefore, I am not worthy of God's love. Therefore, I must be doing something wrong. And listen to this. That is a lie. It is false. Because the measure of your dignity and my dignity does not depend on my priesthood, the fact that I can forgive sins and confect the Eucharist. It does not depend on your successes in the spiritual life or holiness. It depends on one thing only. And this is what the gospel and the second reading preach to us today. We have the capacity, says St. John, to be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are clean of heart, for they shall see God. And we shall be called the children of God. Now you might think, okay, we're back to the basics. We're back to catechesis when I was six, year old, six years old. Did you know you're a beloved child of God? And sometimes we say, yeah, duh, let's move on. But the only way the saints are holy... The only way mystical realities happen in your life, the only way we can live heroic virtue, the only way that Jesus Christ can transform us into heroic people in our culture is to dive deeper and deeper down into the fact that we're sons and daughters of the eternal God. Angels are jealous of you. Some angels called seraphim, they get so close to God that they burst into flame. And yet we as human beings can get even closer. St. Jose Maria Escriva says, We are not called to any normal kind of happiness. No, the happiness that we are called to is to enter into the very intimacy of the inner life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't let those words be too familiar because that is the greatest, most radical thing anyone has ever proclaimed. You yourself are created for what? Not normal happiness. To enter into the intimacy of the inner life of the triune God. 
And it's only centered in that that all of the mystical realities can explode. But we have to have the eyes to see, to become humble like children. Humble like children who raise their hands and say, we have a perfect family. I'm sorry, I'm done, I'm done. <laughs> but it's the childlike. If we look at children in the world today, are they productive members of society? No. In the eyes of society, children are leeches. It's horrible. They take your money, they take your energy, they take your time. They take your patience. Why have children? Because from them explodes life, wonder. Because they are a world all unto themselves, exploding with goodness. Why? Because they are your child and you love them, not leeches worth dying for, worth using your last breath as a mother to say what? Tell my children I love them. Sometimes it seems like if you watch children, especially very young infants, that they see a whole nother world. Maybe they see angels here at Mass. See? Because that's what's happening. I don't know if you've heard of her, but there's a mystic of our day who lives in Bolivia right now. Her name is Catalina Rivas. She hasn't been fully approved because she's still alive and has mystical experiences, but her bishop says, this seems authentic. Her spiritual director, a priest, says, this seems authentic. Fox News, a handful of years ago, did a report on her and filmed as the stigmata appeared on her hands, her feet, and her forehead, on film. And the wounds of Christ appeared the day after Corpus Christi. She had the eyes of a child to see what goes on at Mass. She gives several instances. It's beautiful. Please look it up eventually. There's so many details. What happens at Mass? And what she says is at the beginning, we all come together. And Mary was inviting her to say, okay, have you prepared for Mass? When we get to the penitential rite, Lord, forgive me for my sins so that I can enter into this Mass fruitfully. Mary helps her to make an examination of conscience. Oh, do you remember this? Do you remember that? And do you remember that thing? And she says, without you, Mary, I would not have been prepared for Mass. Confessing our sins preparing for the Most Holy Eucharist. And then she says, eventually, when the offertory happened and the, the gifts were brought forward in her cathedral, what happened? All of a sudden, people that she didn't see before start standing up and walking from the center aisle to the altar. And she realizes all of a sudden, from every person in the pews, a guardian angel stood up and carried forward a bowl or a chest from each of the people they're assigned to, to offer to God on the altar of sacrifice their intentions, their joys, their sorrows, their sufferings, their fears, their hopes. And some angels had a chest full of people to pray for, 
because the mass is infinite. We don't have to just have one little intention, oh, for this person. No, for everyone, for everything. And some angels came up looking sorrowful with nothing in their hands, only able to offer themselves because their person offered nothing. So we're encouraged, bring all of this forward. Offer many prayers, everything your heart experiences on the altar to God. But the central image that I want to focus on is what she sees with the eyes of a child when the consecration arrives in the Mass. Quote, Behind the right side of the Archbishop appeared a multitude of people, also in a diagonal line. Because first she sees angels from heaven in a diagonal line. And then she sees all the saints, a multitude of people, also in a line. They were all dressed in the same tunic, but in pastel colors of rose, green, blue, lilac, yellow. In short, in different, very soft colors. Their faces were also brilliant, full of joy. They all seemed to be the same age. You could note that they were people of different ages, but their faces looked the same, without wrinkles and happy. And then they all knelt down at the singing of holy, holy, holy. This is what happens at Mass. She later describes how she sees Jesus himself on the cross above the priest as he holds up the Eucharist. And there together is the presence of Jesus Christ in his body, blood, soul, and divinity. And this isn't just today on All Saints Day. All Saints show up today for Mass with you. Nice. No. Every single Mass. They're here present And when you kneel down after singing holy, 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 with you and with your families, every saint in heaven kneels down before Jesus in the Eucharist in reverence, just like we hear in the book of Revelation. And we're encouraged, not because they were mystics, not because they had visions. The Vatican even says, simply because you have visions does not make you a saint. Did you know that? But I saw Jesus, and he said something to me that wasn't heretical. It was good. Doesn't make you a saint. You're made a saint by how you respond to the visions. You're made a saint by how you respond to the mystical experiences of life. And how do we respond? Not just to the mystical, but to the mundane. How do we respond to our children when our patience is running low? How do we respond to God in prayer when it's desolate and it's hard and it's dark? Like a child. Like a child reaches up to his father's arms. I need you. I need you. Have mercy on me. And that is what makes saints. What do all saints have in common with us, except for Mary? They were all sinners. Every saint but Mary was a sinner. And without God's mercy... We're all destined for damnation. But because of God's mercy, we can spend eternity in heaven with the saints. 
This is the reality. At the end of the movie, The Royal Tenenbaums, as Eli crashes through the front window into the house, one of the, one of the sons, Chaz, he chases him through the house in complete anger for destroying the day. And eventually he chases him to the backyard where there's a corner. He lifts up Eli and throws him over a wall to throw him out of the house. So the symbol of Eli crashing into the family, and Chaz takes Eli and throws him out of the family. You have no place here because of your weakness, your craziness, your inability to actually love. And as Chaz turns around victorious, having cast Eli out, he sees his family standing there in horror at his rage. And he's humbled in that moment. And what does he do? He climbs over that wall and goes out and lays down on the gravel right next to Eli. And Eli looks over at him and says, I need help. And Chaz looks back over to him and says, me too. And then together they re-enter into the family. Together peace comes, reconciliation and redemption. Because they reached the low point in their lives and didn't despair. They didn't say, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I must be doing something wrong. They say, no. In the faith we would say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he says what? Come to me. Come to me, you who are burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is easy and light. His mercy endures forever. So as we come to the altar today, may we have the eyes and the hearts of children who can see the reality. It's not by pleasing. It's not by the externals of my success. It's not even by the mystical realities that we experience in this world that we're saved. With our eyes of children, we look and see the mystical reality of the saints present here clothed in white. And as the book of Revelation says, what? They point to the Lamb and say, not salvation is from me. They say, salvation comes from God and from the Lamb. And that they were washed clean, not in their own blood, by their own merits, but they were washed clean with the blood of the Lamb. So today, as we approach the altar, we approach in trust, in reception, with our hands out, with our mouth open. Come, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Father, show me who I am. And please, God, if by our last breath on this earth, we really receive and enter deeply into the love of God for us as his sons and daughters, and by his mercy, we might enter then into eternal glory with all the saints where we too will become brilliant, filled with joy, and happy for all eternity. To be with all of the saints, both high and low, contemplating God and being loved by him forever. May it be so through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, through the intercession of all the saints, 
and most especially, the blood of the Lamb, the mercy of God. Amen.